Hello, and welcome to Shoot the Shit, a podcast about buggy. The idea for this podcast came about like so many other great ideas in the history of Carnegie Mellon University. It was late one night at William Penn Tavern, and a group of us were sitting around talking about buggy and how many great characters and stories there were in the sport. And wouldn't it be great if we could record those stories and put them out and share them with the community? Well, this is an attempt to do just that. My name is Will Weiner, and I'm going to be your host. I've had the privilege of interviewing some of the biggest movers, shakers, and behind-the-scenes characters who have shaped Buggy into what it is today. So I ask that you sit back, relax, and enjoy as we shoot the shit. You might want to strap into your safety harness for this one. I am joined by two of the most outspoken members of the Buggy community, Mark Estes and Andy Bordick. I've gotten to know Mark and Andy well by doing the broadcast with them over the past decade or so, but anyone who knows them more broadly knows that they are full of stories and full of opinions about Buggy, and we get deep into those here. Uh, We start off by talking a little bit about their involvement with the broadcast, and then go into their time, their involvement here, their theories about the sport and where it's heading, and of course, now that the FCC guidelines and uh, some of the statute of limitations of their time at school are gone, we get some pretty interesting shenanigans. So I hope you enjoy as I sat down with them to shoot the shit. Today, an episode I am extremely excited about. Uh, two guys I know well in the buggy world. Uh, the gloves are off. Mark Estes, Andy Bordick, and we're going to see where this goes. So thank you both so much for, for joining me. How are you all doing today? I'm great. Well, how are you good. doing? Oh, good. I've been uh, looking forward to this one. Uh, I've recorded a few other of these and told people we were all getting on the line. And there is great fear and anticipation from, from everyone. Uh, and it's know, great for, to get a warm-up in before we do the broadcast for the, the 100 year, too. Exactly. So I'm looking forward to working with you all on that. Uh, for those of you who are listening to this, not as familiar, um, Mark and Andy have done a lot within the sport of buggy. Most recently, though, they have joined me as broadcasters over the last decade or so. Uh, So we're going to go ahead and actually kind of just start talking about that as one of the aspects of Buggy that's grown and evolved, and then get into some of the weird history and all of that, Um, because this is actually stuff I don't know. How did each of you kind of get into the broadcast? Uh, What what motivated you, and what was that like? Because I know that's something that's changed a lot over the past 15, 20 years. I wasn't originally ever thinking of broadcasting, but way, way back when, in my youth, uh, when I was either between undergrad and grad school or during grad school, I occasionally was the lead car camera guy. Mm. And that was interesting because that was the only real video we had of the race at the time. And uh, that is not an easy job because the G-forces in the shoot are forcing pretty much everyone in the truck to fall on you. And you're trying to keep the camera aimed somewhere back towards the buggies. Uh, but I think I got involved in the broadcast here. It was sort of tied in with the birth of the Buggy Alumni Association. Mm-hmm. So if you go back, the there had been the pikeabuggy.com, which I think Sam originally founded in response to being told to stuff it when he tried to take a picture of a pika buggy, which ended up turning into sort of a buggy geek fest in terms of a lot of the participants on there were, I think, heavy hitters from from Andy's era, for the most part. There was a a lot of discussion, and one of the discussions was how terrible the broadcast had become. Mm -hmm. And how sort of out of touch with regular buggy it was. 
And I think I made the mistake of agreeing with somebody. And next thing I knew, I had been nominated to broadcast alongside Andy. And Andy was an obvious choice because he is uh, very knowledgeable and was, I think, a little more outspoken than me in terms of how lousy the previous broadcasts had been. And then they were looking for a good foil to Andy, and they said, well, who better than than his arch nemesis? (laughs) And, and and, And yet we really weren't. Arch Nemesis, our times at Carnegie Mellon barely over, overlapped. And I'm pretty sure during, if I hadn't seen him before the first broadcast, I couldn't have picked him out of a crowd. But, uh, and yet, philosophically, we certainly were a good pair to try to match up with each other. Yeah, for us, you know, Mark, I'm sure I had the same experience as me, where we would watch the, the buggy footage, and, and RCT and CMUTV kept upping their game, which was really fabulous because it started with like some guy like mark with a really shaky video and then they started you know doing some a voiceover with it and some radio broadcast and it was so bad i mean the people talking didn't know anything about buggy they grabbed somebody from rct put a microphone in their face and and that was it and for those in the know like me and mark who like we geek out on this most of what was said was wrong and it was just it was so grating i would turn the volume down as i watched the footage it was just horrible. Wow. And he's right. I'm, you know, I'm a little outspoken. I mean, like, you know, Will, <laughs> when you came on, I will say your first year was not amazing. No, I, uh, I agree. And, but, and the thing is, but and that's, like you work so hard at it and it's gotten so good. Those days when it was bad, it just seems like a, like a, like a nightmare, like some bad dream that we've woken from because the quality is so much better now. The, the video quality, the broadcast quality. When you hear people misnaming buggies, the wrong organizations, not even knowing the name of the course locations, it, Mark and I would just beat our heads against the wall. It was really bad. I think the thing that always great, I could forgive most of that. I could not really get over not appreciating what was unfolding in front of them. When like a buggy was catching another buggy, it would go unstated. Or when a buggy was absolutely stomping away in the front, there would be no recognition. And so you had no sense of content. And actually, the, the video footage uh, got better and better. I mean, CMU TV has actually been doing an amazing job for longer than Andy and I have been involved. But it was really just sort of the, 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 the broadcast team was the weak link. And I, I really think it was uh, Abby, Abby Sullivan, who kind of put her foot down and demanded to put through the alumni channel that, that, that we could do better. And I got recruited, which really meant for me, I had to show up a day early for Carnival because back then there was uh, a, whole, a whole sense of uh, trying to make sure that we got this right. And we didn't know each other. It was, you know, meeting you, meeting Andy, trying to get a sense of the flow down. Um, and I would say our first broadcast was, we were at least informed, but we weren't great in terms of as a team but i would say by the time we got to the second or third year it was working pretty well but we were able to not talk over each other we had figured out sort of who did what i look at those as sort of the golden years of the broadcast and it i you know i have backed off from participation as other people have wanted to be involved and i'm all for giving people a shot but I, I really think that uh, we are on our A game when it's the three of us. 
And it's really, I think, not so much that we're better than other people, just we've, we've been doing it longer as a group. And so the flow is there. And, and, and that part is one. The other part is, you know, Mark, he knows so much about what's happening that there's a lot of dead time between race, but there's a lot of things that are sort of rule-based that, that happen, that become options that teams can do that the previous broadcasters didn't even think about. You know, you talk about replacing a B team with an A team to get them to go because your A team DQ'd. There's, there's a lot of rules that people, I mean, that rule book is big and, and onerous. I mean, if you read through that, you've got, you know, you're just an insomniac. But knowing them means that we can look and go, hey, this just happened. Therefore, X, Y, and Z is going to happen next, and this team's in trouble. They're, they're, this is going to happen. They can lodge a protest. And the previous broadcasters didn't know any of that. And so there'd be all this dead time when things are actually happening, but it wasn't discussed. And everyone's in the dark. You know, with the, with the feedback we get, I mean, we get stuff right away. Someone's lodging a protest with a two-minute delay. The link is so much better and there's so much um, better understanding of what's happening, not when it's racing. It's just a way better show. Some of that's our knowledge, but a lot of that is how absolutely wired the buggy broadcast has become in terms of data and information. I mean, we're sitting there, the people up at the broadcast booth have laptops open. They have data feeds from the scoreboard. They have data feeds from the online chats where everybody else is chiming in. And then more recently, through the efforts of the timing guys, there's live timing data that shows up probably before the race is over in terms of shoot speeds. You actually know exactly how fast each of the buggies was going when it went past the strip of land between mm-hmm. the uh, two transition flags. And that's uh, I think that was put together by, I'm blanking on his name, but he's the Piker brother. Um, Brown. Mr. Brown, Brown, yeah. And uh, I helped him a little bit, but 99% of that is him. And his dedication, he gets there early and sets it up. And it's kind of a thankless job because you're sitting in the one spot where you can't see much, which is over by the monument. Um, so hats off to him. But the, the, the amount of data we have at our fingertips is kind of stunning. I get like text messages from guys who are like in the shoot turn and are listening to the buggy. There's people timing, but they're telling me fastest of the day. You know, I get stuff from people around the world watching the feed and they start asking questions that we should answer as broadcasters and it just makes it better. They're like, you know, what happened with that? What about this? And, and we can actually look at it and address it. So Mark's right, man. The, the, the input is great. So, you know, I, I think obviously Mark and I could talk about the buggy forever, but when we have a context of the races and all that stuff coming together, I think it makes it a really, really good show. I mean, even over the decade now, which is crazy. I've been doing that long. The way that's evolved and the IT and the splits, but even CMU TV and kind of the way they have runners and the the people who are kind of bringing that information and communicating between sweepstakes and us it's just made things a whole lot easier and even the camera angles and stuff like that their ability to replay it it really feels a lot more professional and i do think it's hilarious that like the whole the whole whole baa came together because of like this anti-pica website and then we all started collaborating like i was throwing pictures up there which Oh, you threw Sam Swift off his game. He's like, what do you mean? You're sharing photos on the site that's not supposed to have photos? And it's, you know, it's kind of a little F you to him. Like, you want to make an anti-PICA site? I'm just going to post things that you say you can't have. And then we started talking. And the collaboration, there was Fringe, SDC, Spirit, Sigma Nu, CIA, all these people who had competed against each other for so long. And we're like, we know we can make this better. And it all sort of stemmed from that. And the whole broadcast thing, we sort of hijacked it and nobody said no. And it's just been fabulous. We had a lot of support from the active uh, sweepstakes teams. 
in the early years. They kind of in, invited us in and embraced the change. And so it was, I'm not going to say it was not a revolution because I think it was welcomed. Both RCT and CME TV do an amazing job of putting together the broadcast in terms of the, the, the tech stuff. Just look at the amount of cable that's running around the course for all those TV cameras. And, and it, it's more work to put on the CMU TV broadcast than I think it is to run a buggy work. It is insane. Yeah, Jumbotron has just been like a game changer because you could sit in one spot and see what's going on now. And they never had that. You know, we would be in the shoot trying to figure out what's going on and have no idea or at the finish line and not know what's happening in the shoot turn. And you're just like freaking out. But now you can watch it in either spot. It's just awesome. Yeah, that blew my mind because uh, I've only been here post-Jumbotron era. Hard to imagine the way it's uh, kind of really improved. I, I do think, too, it's interesting. I was technically in charge of sports. Uh, as a freshman, they didn't really have anyone. I was like, well, I just wanted to do play-by-play. And not that I was great, but I you know, hopped into football, hopped into basketball. It's like, at least I can talk about this because I've been watching it my whole life. But being dropped into buggy was something entirely different where there's zero context <laughs> to prepare. and you know, carnival's carnival, so it's difficult to go outside and just study up because there's other things going on. Uh, so I am grateful, you know, y'all kept me around long enough to learn, but it's, it's kind of one of those things I wonder, is there someone else at CMU who's a student and wants to do it? I think, too, if I were able to start with just the level of support we have now, would have been a lot, not a lot easier, but somewhat easier to absorb everything as opposed to just you know, drinking out of a fire hose that first year. You certainly climbed that ladder pretty pretty effectively. I mean, you have not mentioned tacos or anything close to floating um, ever, with your credit. And and you've got the rhythm, right? You you you've got the. There's an excitement in your voice. You you know that there's an audience that wants to know who's pushing. Right. This part of this is there's kids and there's kids' parents and there is we're not just broadcasting to buggy geeks worldwide, although that's the primary audience. You've also made it so that it makes sense to some drivers, mom and dad. Right. Which is I think vital. Vital. Yeah. And, and we get a ton of feedback. You know, if you look at those, you know, the people who watch around the world and are watching online, they they they're brutal and they're generally pretty pretty positive about what we're doing. So I think that what motivates me is I, I just want the quality to be there. It's not about me wanting to do it. I just don't want it to, to suck. I, I think it's been great that we've, we've swapped people in and out over the last few years. And some people have been really good at it. Yeah. And other people, they, they come and they realize it's way harder than you think. And they get out. They, you don't come back. And so and it's funny. Uh, I think like a couple of folks like Connor Hayes, I think Lena was great last year. Like they should come back oh. and, uh, Absolutely. Know, they were good. Brian does a pretty good job too. Yeah, it's to Mark's yep. point. It's it's no cakewalk, but man, you know, because we, we could talk about it forever. We're passionate about it, and I'm really, really careful of making it good and fun, though. Like I want it to be fun. So, you know, when I take off my shirt and like show my man boobs, or <laughs> you know, if I do a little dance, because I think it should be a fun thing. I mean, this is not just a serious. You know, it's, just, it's the most ridiculous sport in the world. So it should be interesting and fun. <laughs> that does make it interesting. And I, I do agree with those, you know, some of those recent people being very good. But it's such an interesting thing to broadcast because it's not just radio, but it is on the radio. It's not just TV, but it is on the TV. But you're also announcing it for a live audience. 
And like you mentioned, there are buggy geeks, there's your average student, faculty, staff, the pierogies, and you want to make something that's entertaining and accessible to all of them and not going to bore anyone at any level. And it, it does make it a weird challenge. And it's one of those things you can't really practice for or know you're going to be good at. You kind of just got to jump in and start doing your thing. Yeah, and in the middle of all that, you make public service announcements that you never thought you'd be making. <laughs> Please get the furries off the course. Things like that. Who knew? No scooters on the course during the race. Well, there's been some craziness, but uh, I'll tell you about the, what I thought was my, the highlight of all my broadcasting moments, and it never made the DVD. It was back when they used to put out the DVDs. It was the 2010 uh, Sigma Nu versus Pika alumni race in the in the exhibition heats and it had been set up as in theory it was a, a grudge match of the teams from the 80s which was back when sigma nu had put in a couple of victories uh bracketing a pair of pika victories can you remember so ideally we have, i can it's it's uh, i have to look it up but yeah it's, it was about, right about when you were born andy i think it's uh, way back <laughs> right but, right uh, right so that, the, the setup was the uh, teams from the 80s, but then we found out that, that you guys had substituted a couple pushers from the 90s, and then like some guys who were much older, but some of them were Olympians, like who had actually competed in the Olympics. And we we're like, dang, we're a bunch of degenerates. How do we compete with, you know, social in terms of the, 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 the PR? How do we match up with guys who are, you know, American heroes, Olympians? <laughs> and then over drinks, I, I had the wild idea to just make up our own heroes. And so in the, in the describing the push team, I made up the most outrageous list of achievements and, and embellishments to various pushers' attributes. And it was uh, perhaps the greatest bit of comedy I've ever come up with. And no one remembers it. it was, it's sad. <laughs> no. And then the race itself was insane because you yeah. had, you had uh, very quick up and over from Pika and a good free rolls from both. And then you actually had a bunch of, 60-year-olds versus a bunch of 40-year-olds on the back hills. And we literally caught them at the line, which was... And that's uh, a, I, I, I think Mark, Mark takes a lot of it. He embellishes a lot. <laughs> so <clears throat> uh, the, the use of the word pusher, I think here is being overly exaggerated because I'm pretty sure I pushed in that race. I was the, quote, guy from the 90s. And technically, I was like 38 or 39. So I wasn't quite 40 or over. But our average age on that race was like 52. We had two guys who were 55, I think one 60-year-old. So, yeah, Dave gave it to me on the up and over, and that was all well and good. But never, ever in my entire life have I ever claimed to be a pusher. I pushed once on D-team, and that was it. I was a chairman for a reason. <laughs> Last year when I needed you, you pushed Hill 2 for Sigma Nu alumni. <laughs> well, I just wanted to, you know, see if I couldn't, you know, mess that buggy up too. <laughs> Last year was the best year ever. Not only did I push the Sigma New Hill 2, I received your award and then delivered to your house where nobody was there, and I got to fondle myself on top of your buggy, which was left completely unattended. Yeah, and I, I have a picture you texted me of you holding all our wheels. It makes me sad. They were also, you're an, honorable, you're, you're an honorable man, so I think they're still, they still have those wheels. I did not steal them. No. Had our roles been reversed? and I had found myself in the presence of many pika buggies unguarded, I think things might have gone differently. 
I got some great pictures of that buggy, though, man. I mean, whew, inside, outside, bottom, my butt crack on it. Oh, go ahead. Copy them. Copy that buggy. Oh, that was awesome. I couldn't believe it. Well, this just kind of gives you a sense of, of two buggy programs that used to be neck and neck and have gone different directions. Pika has clearly kept their enthusiasm for the sport, and Sigma Nu has kind of lost much of that enthusiasm. And I'm always ever hopeful that it will be rekindled. And I think I am remaining hopeful at this point. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is interesting. Mm. I think we will get into some of that history. Why don't we maybe just start pivoting over to, to some of that history? Because, right, part of why you were both chosen and brought in for the broadcast is your history and your roles within Buggy. Obviously, you weren't contemporary with one another, but I think still represent a couple really interesting eras in the sport and uh, kind of a shift in terms of fraternities and their roles. Uh, but I guess, Mark, if we want to start with you, what got you into Buggy? You know, were, did you join Signu first? Did you join Signu for Buggy? Or what was kind of the way that developed like? And, and what was the kind of atmosphere around campus, around Buggy? I think the short answer, I was fulfilling my Buggy destiny. I, I, I got placed as a boarder at Sigma Nu. So this Carnegie Mellon had oversubscribed uh, the number of students they were going to let into the engineering class. And they ended up having to house some of them in hotels around town and some of them in fraternities. And so my very first day on campus, I was already living in the Sigma Nu house. Oh. And this was in ninth, the fall of 81. So this was right after ESP, their premier four-wheel buggy back in the spring of 81 had set the course record and then ended up finishing second to CIA who smashed the course record. And so spray painted on the walls, uh, Mylar stickers everywhere were all these ESP. And I'm like, what the hell is ESP? What's this stand for? Yeah. What is that? What yeah. is that? Uh, it's, it's a, it's an acronym for the, the three guys that built the first buggy egg, skip and fill. Uh, that's <laughs> all I'm going to say on that. But, uh, so they said, well, we have to show you, but you are you, are you going to pledge anywhere else? They said, uh, probably not. I'm not sure I'm going to pledge anywhere. They said, well, fair enough. And they took me in the buggy room, and that was it. I was addicted immediately. Some people, it takes a while. Me, no. So that was the moment I decided to pledge. And I spent the spring of that year making most of the parts for lemur, and I had no idea what I was making. I just was out in the garage with a hacksaw and a belt sander and... I had drawings with dimensions and I put a bunch of parts together and then I, I stopped doing buggy work for about a month because my grades were sucking and I woke back up and there was a buggy <laughs> and I was like, dang, and it was lemur. And so uh, being a great student, I had a nice long arc as an undergrad at Carnegie Mellon. I think part of that was fueled by my lack of focus on school and my big focus on buggy. But in that time zone, we won it twice. We came in second and third. And then we had a couple bad years towards the end when I was trying to overcompensate for my awesome push team, mostly having graduated. Turned up the wick on the buggies a little too much and very few of them survived the shoot. So <laughs> that's how I got started. So for me, um, I was a little late, I, I was, you know, much later than him. I, uh, I was a spring pledge to Pika. Now, what I was doing was 
as an architecture major, uh, you know, I was doing whatever they told me to do for the program. And they actually had a woodshop project we had to do. And on my own, I made um, basically a hand carved street luge. So actually six wheels, you know, you lay on your back and it's shaped almost like a mannequin. It's a beautiful thing made out of, you know, this beautiful basswood. It's, it almost looks like, like another body. Like when they got, when they heard about that, I'd done that list on my own for class. They're like, dude, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta try this whole mechanic thing. And so Pika was much more, even worse than market. They were, they, I didn't see the inside of the buggy room. So I think I was a sophomore Wow. and, um, and they just put you to work because they would pull stuff out and we would work on the buggies out a little bit, but you wouldn't go in the room. Um, and then they had me do like all the boring stuff, like some of the body work and I was helping make molds and we had a new idea how to make a mold, but it was really, really heavy. And so um, I took those yellow mop buckets uh-huh. and put this really, it, the mold probably weighed three or 400 pounds. Um, I put this thing on mop buckets so we could pull it out and work on it and put it back in the buggy room. And they thought that was the best idea ever. Like these guys were easy to impress. <laughs> and so I just started getting more and more into it. And then, um, you know, I was lucky enough uh, that uh, in 93, I was helping the chairman then. And he basically told me that I was going to be the chairman in 1994. And when you sort of have that sense of ownership, you really get more involved. So like, I think my fifth year, it was supposed to be a fifth year as an architecture degree, but I was probably doing 50 hours a week of buggy. Wow. And maybe 10 to 15 of class. And I wish I'd Yeah, done that's more. about the right ratio. Yeah, I count myself as fortunate for having had a few girlfriends that pushed me to actually go to class. Because I think I would have gone 80 or 90 hours buggy, zero hours of class if it had been up to me. I was a full-on addict, and I could not get enough. And I started as a wheel guy, and just, you know, I'm a, a guy in the truck, so one of the many people in the truck. But by the time I was in my, I'll call it my first junior year, I was pretty much the lead designer, although I wasn't running the day-to-day buggy stuff. Sure. But I still, there was a, somebody else was the buggy chairman. And I stayed the wheel guy my whole career because that's uh, something you can't walk away from. It's funny, our wheel man, so I, they, they brought me in my freshman year, albeit in the spring, <clears throat> second year, third year, come fourth year, I had still not ever been in our wheel room. That's how secret of our wheels. Wow. Were. Even I, who was like a three-year mechanic and in the truck and everything else, couldn't go in the wheel room. I mean, it was just insane. Back then, they were, um, there was a lot of, at least for us, there was about half of the work at Buggy was just getting the wheels ready because they really weren't user-friendly. And they, uh, yeah. they took, they're very finicky and they took an enormous amount of care in feeding. And in comparison, like modern wheels, these, these urethane Wheels, they're cast onto aluminum hubs. They take nothing. Mm-hmm. You can buy them off the shelf and go fast, which is crazy. So, that, like, I mean, that's put really it, been one of the big changes. I mean, Will, to put it in perspective, yeah. we had, let's say, you know, if you're going to roll on a race day and you've got four different teams, so A, B, C, and D, you're going to have a primary set of A wheels and a backup. You're going to have B, C, and D, plus some backups. You've probably got 50 wheels there for the women's and everything else, too. And my wheelman knew every single wheel, and he knew exactly what level of performance it was going to give him. Every single one, like ranked from one to fifty, he knew this wheel was his best wheel, his second best wheel. Boom, all the way through. It, I mean, it's just those guys were just mad alchemists. Yeah. Wow. Some some of ours had names. We had Mister Chip. We had Thumper. We had his buddy. So it was Thumper and his buddy. They always went as a pair. Um, <laughs> 
So yeah, we had. I think a, our wheel budget. And, I think our wheel budget alone was like five thousand dollars. Wow. Yeah, it was nuts. But it's weird. We would spend money on on absurd things, and then we were helpless when he, like the, the the wheel budget would be. What can we beg Goodyear to make us, and then what can we do to make it better? Yeah, but that was a that was a different time. I think I've written about it on uh, in the comment section on the history of buggy, sort of a my perspective on how the the, the wheel wars have evolved because it's really you know buggy is about you got to have a push team you got to have a reasonable driver and you got to have good wheels and the buggy is a distant distant fourth in that equation the driver makes all the difference in terms of making this u-turn and how much energy you lose and after that it's pushers and wheels and so few people know that they're like oh look at this sweet new buggy i'm like whatever i will tell you the buggies that i built on the inside don't look really great but they work because uh, I know you just you hit the really critical parts of making sure that you know all the stuff that connects the wheels to the ground are done really well, and people just don't get it. Like I, you know, the Sigma New buggy that I looked at last year was beautiful in its simplicity, and that's what makes that thing consistent. It's easy to take care of and let it rip. And uh, I don't think people got that. Look at Teal Whistler. What a nightmare that thing was. Yeah, <laughs> eight million pivots. <laughs> I don't think Will knows his one. This is like, this is sort of just after their two wheels went away. They built a buggy wheel that was a reverse trike. So there's two in the front, one in the back. And the front wheels, they designed to lean into the turn. So the two front wheels, when they pivoted, they would also lean into the turn. And that thing was such a piece of crap. They could never get it to work. It's, dude, you don't need that. It's just not that hard. But man, they worked so hard to get that thing to work, and it just failed miserably. Wow. SDC had a bunch of buggies before they got great that had very complicated multi-linked rear suspensions yeah. and somewhere out there is great video footage of the thing basically falling apart in the chute it hits some critical oscillating frequency and just shakes itself to death wow and it's actually um both it's one of the things you just can't look away and at the same time <laughs> your mind is screaming why did they do this they figured it out after that but um clearly they figured it out to the point of it, it becoming somewhat boring these days i was really lucky i had Seriously, I had actually like a log book, like a, like a chairman's book, and it went back, I don't know, 15, 20 years of lessons learned and what to do and how to think. And, you know, it really influenced me designing and prepping the buggies that I had. It was just, it was a combination of really good advice, a bunch of drunk fraternity wisdom, and like this basic, you know, alchemy. It's funny that one day, I, I had feared for my life many times doing buggy. One of the ones where we had to go pick up some volatile chemicals that we would keep illegally in the house. And we picked up a 55 gallon drum of this thing that I think would have taken out a half a city block had we gotten an accident. And it was just like wrapped in a blanket strapped in the back of my little tiny pickup truck. And we tried to pick it up like in the evening. So we'd get back and it was dark and get into the house. And that's just one of the ways I'm like, man, if I just, if somebody just bumps me, we're going to blow up and we're all going to die. We had Mark stuff that was a known, a known mutagen, mm-hmm. like it causes mutations. I'm like, wow, that's not something I really want to have in the buggy room. And there it was. There it was. You know, an integral part of the wheel program. Really? Right. It's kind of like when, you know, Carl not tells a story when he's in the, in the, in the spirit buggy room and he's working with this, like this little, you know, extension light, like a draftsman's light. And he actually smacks the light and it falls into his uh, organic chemicals and somehow doesn't explode. 
And that man is just living a gifted life. That stupidity did catch people out, like the the ATO truck fire was not some random accident. They were literally trying to blow themselves up, and (laughs) it worked fine. I believe they they were literally heating open container of something that ends in AIM, um, which is a highly volatile chemical with a low flash point over a barbecue grill. Come on. So, no. Oh yeah. Yes. And, uh, mm-hmm. luckily, uh, you know, the, the fire went up and, and they all jumped out except the driver who was trapped in the buggy, the guy that was in my class. And I can't remember his name. He actually went back into the burning truck and dragged the buggy out with her in it. Yep. I heard and he kind of threw it out too. Like, yeah, but he chucked it out and saved her, and he ended up burning himself so bad he missed the rest of the year. Wow! So he was no longer in my classes with me. But he's a—I think without that heroic effort, we wouldn't have buggy. Right? No, and, no. And, and, it was, died, it was, and literally, buggy cannot afford another serious injury. It just—it cannot. The, the administration has no appetite for that. Right. And I'm always—I'm always amazed. And that was the great impetus for for the rule change that happened during my senior year. The, the 87, we went from having a 10-page rule book to like an 80-some-odd-page rule book. Most right. of it about safety, but some of it also about just trying to preserve some of the procedural aspects of bugging. If you look at the rule book, you go, why is this all in here? It's because it wasn't ever written down anywhere else. Uh-huh. Like, how? Where, where do the lanes begin and end? And, and what's the procedure for running a race? Right, and just oh, hey, trying to codify it. Hey, Mark, we have to um, we have to do something about that. By the way, they're going to tear down the old gym. Thanks. So we What's have to come up with a there? marker for the start line. I, yeah, it's that that the one okay. wall facing Margaret Morrison is like is that lane two, and then lane three is up, and lane one is back, or something like that. They basically look yeah. down the, that wall, uh, Will, and is when they're lined up with the surface of that wall, that's the start line for one of the lanes, and the other two are like plus or minus three feet or something like that. Mm-hmm. The building goes away. There's no start line. That's crazy. No, there's, it's, it's, there's, there's so many little stories like this that just jump out that are kind of cool and scary and just things we used to do. You know, Mark talks about the rules. I mean, there's so many anti-pica rules in there. The, the five-second rule is an anti-pica rule. They used to hover around this buggy and, like, not drop it until, like, ready on the set go, and we'd be in the way of other teams. And, like, you have to be away from a buggy five seconds before – um, or eight seconds before the gun. Um, and it's just stuff like that that, you know, pikes do really badly because they didn't care. I mean, it is interesting to hear through these kind of the shift in the culture and the gamesmanship and even kind of the tension between teams, which I think still exists, but it doesn't feel as really intense or as, as bitter. I am interested, you know, just seeing new pike, Maybe not the number one rivals of one another, but you know, kind of in your experiences, what that was like, kind of between the teams and some of that rivalry. The thing, like, so I was after Mark, right? So Mark had done a lot of science; they've a lot of work. You know, one of his good buddies works at Goodyear. His day job is to make rubber, and so of all the teams I would spy on, Sigma Nu was my number one target because I knew they knew what they were doing. Their wheels were amazing. Their buggies were really good. Their steering was really good. Man, do whatever I could. I, you know, I never reverted to stealing and destroying like other teams had done in the past. Um, but man, I spied on Sigma Nu as much as possible. What do you mean by spy? So if I saw Sigma Nu carrying their buggies into their house, I would literally sprint over there, lay on the grass, 
and look underneath and see how much room is there for their wheels to move, which would give me an indication of how their steering system works. I'd look at like the, the hub and, and, uh, and bearing system that they had so I could figure out, well, what kind of wheels do they have and how might they be producing them? Like I would try to get pictures so I could see how the driver was driving. I would watch the lines. Hell, I would watch really crummy, grainy VHS video to try to figure out if they had three wheel steering or not. Like so many things I looked at to try to figure out what they were doing because their buggies are awesome. If you put a Signu buggy behind the best pushers that we've had, easily set the record, hmm. no doubt. Yeah, we had a couple years where that was definitely true. And we had a couple really good push teams, but we always had a push team where you'd have like two guys that stood well above the other three. And you'd be like, wow, if we only had five of those guys. Well, I think yeah, you guys modern teams, together. they have five of those guys, right? You look at some of those uh, PICA push teams that have, have gone very close to, you know, sub 206. And you look at the, the STC push teams. And even I think there was occasionally a fringe push team. Those are five guys we never had. Right? And it's really kind of a function of how big is your organization and what can you pull from? So if you have a house of 20 brothers, your five fastest guys are probably somebody else's C team. Right. Right. Because it's just, it's your sample size isn't that good. And if you have, you can pull from the entire campus, which is sort of the evolution of what's happened with Buggy in general since our day when, when the independents were, they didn't dominate. And now they certainly do. And that part of it's because, uh, you know, one of the two magic ingredients or one of the three magic ingredients is push team. And if without a push team, you really, uh, don't have much of a shot. And it's not surprising that the faster fraternities look recently between PICA and SIGEP are both relatively large houses on campus relative to like the likes of a modern Sigma Nu, which has, you know, they hover around 20 guys, plus or minus. I think yeah, when PICA was in their streak, they were north of 80 and south of 120 for a lot of that. And that's, that's a pretty big difference and a significant difference in terms of the, the, the push talent you, you have on tap independent of whether or not you recruit for pushing or not, or recruit for athletes, which um, certainly uh, I would say that, that PICA looks for guys who are athletic. Why wouldn't yep. they? It goes, right? Why wouldn't they? So, hey, Will, there's, there's, a, oh, there's been a big cultural shift, though. Like, it's funny because a lot of people don't know what used to happen. We used to put timers out to every free roll, and we'd have two, three, four timers at every free roll, and do you know who who he who we would time at free rolls? Who? Everybody. Oh. We we timed everybody. We knew every buggy, driver combination, and how they were rolling. I could tell you who had the fastest top speed on any any year and any weekend. Like, okay, Signal New A is running like this, Spirit's running this, you know, Fringe is running this. We had times on everybody. And then we would go out and we would time pushers. Like we knew who their fastest hill ones were. We timed everybody and everybody knew we timed it. We would send our timers out on push practice when Pika wasn't even out. Wow. We'd disguise and they're taking data. We'd sit there and there was the heat selection and it was the most bizarre thing I've ever seen. I will tell you that the guys who preceded me were kind of jerks. They were, they were pushy and arrogant. And I try not to be too much, but I, I did appreciate sort of the, the aura that came with it. We would sit in heat selection and because sweepstakes didn't sort of have the depth of data that we had, yeah, we would start. They start selecting. So the way heat selection goes is the number one seed gets the first pick. Usually they go the last heat of the day. Now, Pico used to never take the last heat of the day. We would take the second to last heat of the day. Do you know why? No. When things went bad, there have been times where they open the roads up, and so if you're the last heat of the day and they open the roads up, 
hey, man, races are over. Second to last heat, you get 10 minutes, 12 minutes to lodge a protest, ask for a real, whatever else. Mm. So we would always take the second to last heat. So we had that one little buffer. So if something went wrong, we could protest. But what would happen is as they start stacking up, everyone would get their heat. And they'd probably take, like, let's say, I'll take lane one. Then they'd start going, all right, KDRA wants to go against SDCB. And sweepstakes had a vested interest to avoid crashes and smashes and all kind of other stuff like that. They would say, they would ask, hey, KDR, what's your hill one time? And they'd say 17 seconds. And sweepstakes would look over the Pika chairman and either give a little head nod or a little no. Because they knew we had the data. We knew their times. We didn't want the the accident either because it would mess up the whole day. And we honestly would sit there and deconflict. And we said, there have been times where we said, I recommend fringe B not running against SDCC or something like that because their front hills are too close. Or we knew where they were going to pass down the hill because we had all their times in the free roll. And we're like, dude, there's going to be an accident right there at the second flag. It was nuts. And the fact that sweepstakes sort of understood and would look to us, we're like the, the de facto timing advisory. It was crazy. Right. Nobody does that anymore. It doesn't happen. We didn't time push practice, but we certainly timed every buggy that went down the hill, no matter how slow. It, it could literally be one where it had to be picked up by a pusher at the monument. We still had a time for it. And it's interesting. We timed a different window than Pika time generally. And I think both of our windows complemented the other guy's buggy. So, oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, our window really uh, gave you uh, a lot of emphasis on the downhill and very, very little on the rollout. Hmm. And, and that made Pika look really good in our eyes. And if, cause they had the fast little wheels that accelerated very well, like kind of, and they didn't really roll out. And then, of course we had these massive um, soapbox derby based gyroscopes that were uh, a little harder to get going, but once they did, they really um, liked to run fast. So they timed us as a, a little trap down near the shoe flag where we were hauling and a little bit of rollout. And so we looked good in their eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah. No, they would roll it's up. The thing that we actually, our timing systems both kind of in, tried to, it actually pushed us, I think, to try to go faster because we always were behind relative to the other guy just based on how we timed. And the, the, the timing marks have sort of changed around. Now there's sort of a standardized crosswalk to the stripe on the driveway that most people look at for the overall free roll. Uh, and then there's the, the trap time that Mr. Brown generates faster weekends, which is probably more attuned to the shorter trap that Pike used to time. At least back in my day, they did. And then there's sometimes there's camera data from Sharif that tells us for relative efficiency into and out of the chute because he has two, two spots. So your speed over here versus your speed over there and, and who can keep it together going through the chute. And in modern times, CIA tends to dominate that event they don't tend to dominate the speed trap at the at the front end. That's more of a Pika Spirit uh, SDC battle for who's on top. And they they have published that every year or so, at least at one spot. I think it was part of the pre-race day package a couple of years ago. Efficiency? No, no, yeah. Top you see all that. Yeah, okay. So, well, I don't know if you know what they do. If you, so, if you don't, they look I can the, look you up. <laughs> they look at the Delta. No, Mark, I, I have the data. Thank you. Um, they, they look at um, how much speed you had going downhill and how much you carry through, and it rates the efficiency of the buggy mm. driver. Because like, the driver could influence it. If the driver reefs on a turn, they're going to slide and, and lose a lot of energy. But we would actually calculate the efficiency of how much energy we carry through the turn and how well we're doing it. And we would tweak how we coach the drivers, how we prep the wheels, how we distribute the fast wheels on the buggy, like you know, front left, front right, back, you know, things like that. 
um, like super geeking out. I'm, I'm not sure they do much of that today in the groups. I'm not, maybe SEC's doing it. Um, I'm not sure Pike is doing it anymore. Interesting. Is that, do you think, because there's greater data available in general or just kind of a loss of manpower, interest, effort, what have you? Uh, or it may be that it, it, if you're running three exactly similar wheels, it doesn't matter where you put them, right? But, it, I mean, for a long time, Pika was running an odd mix of a pneumatic and non-pneumatics, and they had to do that as part of what Andy was just talking about, trying to be as efficient as possible through the shoot, because an enormous amount of time is gained or lost somewhere between the shoot flag and the hill three pusher, right? Okay. And it's, uh, it's, it's sort of the invisible piece of race. Everybody can get down the hill pretty quick within reason, it's getting back up that makes a difference. I mean, you have a certain amount of up and over, right? The, the very best teams are hitting that crosswalk a couple of seconds before the very worst teams. But the finishing order is usually far more spread out than that. And a lot of that is involved shoot flag to hill three. And you can see it. Like, I, I have a great spot when I'm up on the camera tower. I can tell from a turn, just looking at it, um, how good or bad it is. So, like, I could tell uh, when STC was making, you know, we were thinking that maybe they could set the record even lower, but I knew it was over as soon as I saw the shoot turn because it just, it was not, it was not the perfect turn you needed. It eight seconds and just a little wiggle in the turn, which was, you know, the the Pika team that was giving them a run for it the other year, Mm -hmm. she had an amazing shoot turn, probably flawless. And that's what they needed in order to have a great time. Don't get me started on that. I know who, I know who blew it. I got the times to prove it. Well, it it wasn't me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> wasn't me either. So, Andy, what do you think your legacy is here in, in terms of what did you do or what have you done that is going to carry on in buggy? Do you have a legacy? Is it some of your approach to management? Because I, I know that you're, organizationally, that was one of your strengths is you were a pretty strong leader of students. I was blessed in that case. I had some help, too. Um, I actually shared a story about this guy, Chris Fry. Um, and I in 93. And um, if you would call me the top general in my group, I had some really, really good leadership around me. You know, he was one of them. He was basically my lead mechanic. Um, and he would do things I'd have to ask. He knew what to do. He prepped. And that helped because that got my mechanic team together. My push team was led by Rich Newman, who was equally as passionate and committed and had respect. And he was able to to, to move what? 20 plus guys and do what they had to do. And, and then I was also blessed with the, the girls soccer team who already had a good organizational structure. And I had good relationships with Rachel, who was a soccer player and a driver for us. I had nine timers on race day. You know how hard it is to get nine guys come out and punch clocks all day because of the shared leadership. And I'd like to say that it was that. And, and I think that was, you know, r- really important for our team to succeed. You know, we had four men's teams, two women's teams, nine timers, 10 mechanics, you know, carry out the whole thing. There were 60 guys that were engaged. We had like eight people in the house that weren't involved with race day. It, was, it wasn't just me though, because we had a mission. We hadn't lost. Uh, we had a, a, a streak that was going where if you had pledged PICA as a freshman and you were there for four years, you would have seen a win. So basically we won, we won once every four years since 1952. Right. And the year that I was chairman, that streak was, was at risk and I didn't really have to do much. Everyone knew it. And so that kind of got people b- around it. I will say one of the legacies that I left was um, old Milwaukee. <laughs> I was poor in college 
And uh, so I just bought old Milwaukee and I keep the pounders and I had a little fridge in the buggy room. And for some reason, people thought that was some kind of sacred cow. And so I want to say for at least a decade, they would not work in the buggy room without old Milwaukee in the buggy room. I never said that, never did it. It just stuck somehow. And my girlfriend gave me the fridge. Uh, for a while, we, we would say, that if you're building a buggy, you had to play country music. And I recall whipping up some Hank Williams Jr. when we were pouring Mad Dog and because it had to happen. But then I've heard things later that I thought were just nuts. Like there's a steering system in Mad Dog that uses ball bearings and they can come out. And they would count them. And I don't even, I had no idea how many were in there. I threw them in there, had enough, and we went with it. They would count them. They came up with some weird reason. Like, I don't know if there were 65, it was because of like how many stars are in this constellation, some bullshit like that. It was crazy. So the legacies that lived on is nothing I installed. <laughs> I think the biggest legacy would be like, you know, just kind of Tom Wood taught me this. Just stay involved, keep people motivated, just keep doing it because it's so much fun. Don't ever let it die. And I think you and me are doing that, Mark. Just never want to see this die. I work so hard so that people keep investing themselves because it is such a good event. So I guess that's it. So outside of old Milwaukee ball bearings, I'm going to go with keeping it alive. You know, oddly, we had a, a can of old Frockenslosh, which was a, uh, a bad beer even when I was young <laughs> that was in the buggy room that was alleged to be consumed <laughs> the next time we won. Ooh. And then when faced with the dilemma of drinking it twice, we decreed that it would be consumed the next time we won. <laughs> so we kicked that can down the road. We were all afraid of it. It was old even then. Wow. Yeah, I think, I think my, my legacy is that inadvertently, I think that between Dwayne and I, we ended up, despite our best attempts to keep custom urethane wheels from being prolific on campus, I think it happened because and despite of us. I was fully cured of my buggy sickness. I was, I was free. My addiction was gone. And he got involved in the All-American Soapbox Derby. And he teamed up with uh, some rascals that uh, he helped them get access to some good urethane for their uh, derby car wheels. It ends up that urethane was white and showed up on uh, buggies that SDC was running shortly thereafter, and now it's pretty much all over campus in multiple colors. And I got involved because this other organization, Friends, showed up with green ones one year, and then one of the derby teams had green ones. I was like, well, if I team up with him, I can maybe keep these from escaping, because our worst nightmare was to have Spirit or Pika end up with these good urethane tires. Right. Well, fast forward, <laughs> everybody has good urethane tires. And our attempts to, to keep the lid on that supply uh, were completely useless. And so now I, I just embrace the fact that everybody's got them. Uh -huh. And I try to try to help the, the teams that don't know what to do with them figure out what to do with them. Interesting. So. Well, hey, Mark, you know, I heard, I heard one of the sororities is, is going to have their own team again. I want to be their coach. I think DG's come up with like a, like a whole team and a, getting a buggy and a whole thing. And I'm like, man, I'd love to coach them up. I would love to see them come as a sorority and like place in top five. How cool would that be? Yeah. When was the last time there was a sorority team? Oh, it's Cap been Cap the last Gamma. 10 years. There was, there was Cap, Cap Gamma did it. Oh, you know, I think I remember that. They've always had, it's been like they borrowed a buggy and then, you know, tried to do their own thing. It's the, and this is the, this is the challenge. Buggy is one of these things where as a student by yourself, like as a student organization starting from scratch, 
it's hard. Really hard. Right? If you're if you're a uh, an organization with deep alumni roots, it gets easier. But if you're starting from scratch, like a lot of the organizations, they they tend to come and go, and very few of them stick right. because it is so hard. It's not a money thing. It's and it's not a how much effort those individual students put in. I think it's you have to have the staying power of probably five or six years before you've climbed the knowledge curve and you have alumni who have helped you climb that knowledge curve who can, who can help with the con- continuity of knowledge, right? Andy talked about having buggy books. Uh, you know, we clearly had buggy journals and stuff, but it's also just the word of mouth being handed down from, you know, former chairman to chairman, head mechanic to junior mechanics and so on. If you think about it, a lot of the, the magic that's happening in buggies like the fringe buggies and the SDC buggies that, that go pretty quick, those kids weren't even in elementary school when those designs were initially written down on paper and the first time those designs rolled. So everybody stands on the shoulders of those who came before them. It's tough when you're just starting out on your own. So ha- like being a coach would be the hugest boon to an organization if they actually had someone like Andy telling them, you know, giving them guidance. And I think actually BAA is trying to do that with new orgs. Um, and as kind of uh, when I was interviewing them, they were talking a bit about sort of a mentorship program to do just that because of, you know, how much knowledge is required. Yeah. And, and part of it is because, you know, buggy is, there is secrecy and you're always looking at the other going, well, what makes him faster? And then the mind starts to come up with really creative things, some of which are probably very wrong. Interesting. And so you go chasing down wormholes that um, may or may not be the right idea. Just take any topic and you can definitely flummox yourself with ball bearings, right? We have seen the simple ball bearing be the Achilles heel of more than one organization in the last 10 years, right? We had Barracuda and its its brethren from SIGAP. Those guys uh, went with a bearing approach that on paper would have been awesome. In practice in the shoot, they fell apart. And when your bearings fall apart, Literally. your wheels don't your wheels don't stay on. Right. And they they would not have known that going in. Like you, it's not like these you know all ceramic bearings are heralded as being super expensive and very fancy, and they are. But they're really for specific uses. They're great, mm-hmm. but they're a terrible idea for a buggy. <laughs> and they found out the really hard way. But they would have been better off with knocking some cheap ass bearings out of a bunch of Zooter wheels and running those, <laughs> even though they're awful. Interesting. Right. You remember when SCC had that carbon fiber spindle problem? They kept like losing yeah. wheels and spindles and all. it was awesome. Yeah. They spent five years having wheels fall off, which is not good. Yep. They, yeah. they figured that out. They've got it down. Right? You know, they seem to have pretty thing. much a, a indestructible recipe now, right? Well, yeah, they're good now. I mean, but all that thievery, I mean, Carl Knott, and I, again, I love Carl Knott because, hey, he put my name on the back of the 1998 buggy book. And he thought that there were some kind of weird things going on with Mad Dog. The one day he just found the cave and goes, please just tell me, what kind of suspension system does Mad Dog have? And I'm not sure how to answer that question. I'd say it's the same suspension system that's in every Sigma Nu buggy that's come out since 1990 on. <laughs> or 1975 on, I think. Oh, really? That far back? Oh, my God. It's so funny. Because yeah. people, just, they invent these myths in their head that are no way true. It just cracks me up. And then they, they go try to make it happen. Because you don't know, right? It's, well, I, I'm just looking for a little more speed. What if I go, if I go do that? Yeah, that might work. Huh. 
It's so funny, Will. I mean, sometimes it does, right? Crazy. Sometimes it does work. No, it doesn't. There hasn't, hasn't been a gimmick buggy that won in 30 years. No way. Uh, uh, the bike, the, the bike came close. The used bike came close. Yeah, that was it. That was 1988. So like, it's just. I think they should bring back two wheelers. It would make it fun. <laughs> <laughs> Look, here's the here's the question of, of the day, Mark. Are we going to see you bounce on Hill Five again? Because God, that was amazing. You know, I, I may come back. I might even bring sneakers this year, which would be a oh huge step up. A huge step up. I'm, I'm I need to need to redeem myself, but I, I might just make that my signature push and retire because I'm going to relaunch that gift every April for the rest of my life. Uh, yeah, that was a bad choice. I should never have answered my phone that way. It all started <laughs> with that phone call. Hey, Mark, we need some pushers. You got anybody out there? And literally, I I did. I had I found two Piker brothers who were willing to push Brazil alumni, and I was still a pusher short, which meant I ended up on Hill Five. <laughs> And my plan, my plan was sound. I was going to start way, way down by the finish line. Only I, I, I didn't get down there quick enough. So next thing I know, I look up and the buggy's already coming. I'm like, dang, I should probably start running soon. And then my legs kind of cooperated, and then they didn't. <laughs> oh, God, I hope he – Will, we got to put that, like, everywhere on the website. Yeah. Like, the week before. We have to. That was forever etched in my yeah. memory. I haven't ever pushed a buggy, but maybe this is the year. I've always meant to. Oh, um, dude, you have to. Yeah, I, in competition, my my entire record is that push, and then I pushed a Hill Three for Spirit Alumni way back, like in '87 or '88, back when they really didn't have alumni because they they hadn't been around long enough to have buggy alumni. I picked right. up their Hill Three buggy and pushed that for them. Oh, that's awesome. That, that's my entire pushing experience. That's awesome. It's fabulous. I was more at home in the truck. <laughs> yeah, it's way better there. I can't get in a U-Haul truck without getting all nostalgic. Somehow, just the sound of that door opening and the smell of other people's old mattresses or whatever it is that's in U-Haul trucks takes me right back to, to buggy. Oh, man. Eh. I haven't thought about that in a long time. We should probably sell some kind of aroma candle. It's called buggy smell. Yeah, what would that entail? Oh, well, a little uh, bit of hexane of, and a lot of Bondo. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Right. A lot of chemicals you shouldn't be breathing. It was funny because yeah. you walked down by Hill, the base of Hill One, and it smelled like a, a DuPont factory or something. Like it was just chemicals everywhere. You, it, it was bizarre. Like there was just so many smells. Like that's not natural. No, and that's what that's gone away. I mean, most this urethane tends to just you know they they do the common thing, which is get them warm yeah. and send them. And they're fairly indestructible. I mean, it, I miss the days when when Pica would run through the chute, and they would leave a trail of breadcrumbs. I mean, chunks of tire. Those those tires were fast but delicate, and now they have, you know, I think the urethane might be a hair slower, but it's infinitely more durable, which means it's more yeah. predictable, and so you hardly ever have a mishap in the chute uh, in terms of that. Um, occasionally, somebody gets their hands on a poorly made urethane tire, and the uh, the bond between the tire and the rim is right off. not good, and the whole tire rolls right off which um, happened, I think it happened to Fringe Women's A one year, which was really a bad, for them, it was really a horrible event. Uh, certainly, I think it happened for like our women's B team when we got a little over-exuberant in uh, juicing some urethane. And it, it can be juiced, much to your barrel, but you can do it. But uh, I, the smells have kind of gone away. I, it's been a while since I got a whiff of uh, anybody using the sauce. 
well, we, well, we, we called it, we actually, we called it shit. It was just called shit for us. We, we were so bad. Like Mark and his boys would sit down there. And when we had the standard trikes, we would go down in the back end of, and it was called the Pika slide. We would slide through every shoot turn. Like when we won in 1990, uh, Vengeance, uh, which was a one year rolling buggy, had a nice slide, but Darren was able to, to hold it right on the edge. And she'd come back and the wheels would be, would be chipped up pretty good. There was definitely a trail of breadcrumbs. And so, you know, my design intent, because I knew that was killing our back heels, kind of what Mark was saying, like you have to make, make it through there. I designed a buggy specifically to not shred our wheels. It took a lot of doing, but you know, I basically built as much as Sigma Nu called it, you know, the 10th commandment. I wasn't coveting what they were doing. I was applying, you know, the way to preserve the wheels to that turn and not have that happen. Thankfully, the things we put in place worked because that buggy did well three years in a row. It just, it held the rubber together and didn't do that and was able to roll up well on hill three. Once you get a good hill three, it makes hill four easier. And when hill four is getting a good time, you get to great shove to five and, and things go better. And for a long time, Pika didn't do that. We had rubber that fell apart. We were treated the hell out of it. I mean, shoot, man, you could like get a junkie high for a week on those wheels. <laughs> We were able to just kind of get rid of some of that. We had round wheels up the back hills all the time with that, with those buggies. And, you know, it's an important way to design things. And to Mark's point, you know, the buggies aren't that fast right now. It's been all pushers. The 202 that SDC ran was more pusher than buggy. It seems they've really gone for consistency almost more than uh, cutting edge. I don't know. You got a 202, man. They, I mean, they did it. They're not yeah, pushing they're, buggy they're, technology. No, they've got a design they can replicate, and they've figured out how to get a trike pretty cleanly through the chute with a fair amount of efficiency. And they, they, they're light, and they've got amazing pushers, and they, they've got their prep now. My theory is that they, they make a new mallets every year and then just paint it black, and then the old mallets gets a new color, and they call it the new buggy. But I don't think that theory is actually correct. That theory is not correct because you can actually look here. If you have a discerning eye, you can see the various uh, mold lines. Mm. And, hey, Mark, how much do you know about, about the pika buggies in the 80s? Uh, it's cloudy, but I remember them pretty well. They were not always pretty, but they were definitely fast. Um, I and, don't know uh, all the stories, but I know for sure. Pika substituted a whole buggy on race day, and it was a different buggy, and nobody knew about it. A whole buggy? A whole buggy. Wow. They said, but it had been on. It had, been, it had rolled before. They just they swapped. They swapped a buggy in and, and made it. I did that with yeah, a women's team. I ran the same buggy. Ran the same buggy for two women's teams, and nobody was wise <laughs> to it except for the hill one pusher for one of the women's teams came and was yelling at me. <laughs> and I'm surprised I was as diplomatic as I was. I said, "Well, if you will stop yelling, then nobody else will know, <laughs> and we will have gotten away with it." And she went, "Oh." I'm like, yeah, because, I mean, our buggies did not look that similar, neither did Pika buggies. But I don't right. think people were, like, looking at the buggy going, hey, is that really Reamer? Right. I don't think that that question ever really forms anyone's head. Of course it would be your A buggy. Why would anyone question it? So right. no, I wouldn't be surprising if you guys did a, a, complete, a complete buggy swap and nobody noticed. Yeah. That would make total sense. Yeah, yeah. it's crazy. I'm like, I, I don't think it could happen today because there's too much video and everyone watching and stuff. But... I mean, yeah. and we had removable shells on aluminum frames. Yeah. Yeah. We, yeah I, mean, I mean, we only had film cameras back then. Nobody had a cell phone camera. There was no such thing as a digital camera. Right. right. It was all, so you had to just remember what it looked like. Right. Well, I mean, were you doing the, was Pike doing the all black back then still or? Oh, yeah. Oh, no, they were, 
No, Pika didn't go all black until I'm going to say late '80s, early Mid-80s? '90s. They had red and green. Godzilla was green for sure. Bullet was Godzilla. red. I, that was a cool buggy. Uh, you guys had a couple that just absolutely scared the crap out of me back then because, well, every you had Aud, Aud, Audrey or Aubrey, well, I can't remember her name, but the tiny little 65-pound driver that you built little tiny pounds. buggies around. Talk about an advantage. Your driver, I mean, our wheels weighed more than your driver at one point. It was kind of... That's wild. Well, Wood says the combination was less than 100 pounds. The buggy driver, the whole thing was less than wow. 100 pounds. Yeah. Rarely, even today. I mean, a couple things come to mind. The fact that everything was so analog not that long ago, you know, even in just the data you're tracking and the design. And just it's fascinating to me how things change just with the scent of technology and computing over 30 years. Yeah, there's a, a host of change. Like back then, if we wanted a new axle or a new fill in the blank, I had to go find a machine shop and yep. and figure out how to get them to make it for me and it, even how to explain what that part looked like. Now you got places like emachineshop.com where you can literally order it and have it delivered. Right? It's it's kind of day and night and just you know the data acquisition side of it. You know, we had timers everywhere and Pika had timers. These new like Garmin cameras that you see mounted on buggies. They're giving you not only the video, but they're giving you the G-Force printout and, a, and a, a, a speed profile. And you can see your, I don't know if they're accurate enough to see your driver's line perfectly, but they look pretty impressive, right? So the amount of data that you have to train your drivers with, uh, I think a marked change between the old days and new days. And we used to basically, a new driver would sit in the follow car and watch a veteran driver drive. And then they would try it going super slow, sometimes even having somebody run in front of them because it was that slow. Wow. Right? Three rolls used to take forever. When wheels were that hard to get going fast, you didn't use your fast wheels very often. So there was a lot of free rolls, particularly in the fall, that were really, really uneventful because people were just crawling down the hill. And I think the other, yeah, the like, other big change from then to now was the disparity in buggy speed. It used to be that there was only, in every heat, there was a fast buggy and a medium buggy and a slow buggy. And now they're all kind of fastest or very fast. There's not a lot of dogs in the race anymore. It makes for tighter racing. I think it, it kind of defeats some of the um, attempts to get buggies spaced apart that we used to have. And if they really are looking for safety, maybe they would mix up uh, men's and women's heats. Right. I mean, even some of these you see with the push team buggy disparity you have a slow buggy that gets over hill two a lot faster and then it gets crazy once you get down to the chute i think we've seen that a lot more these past few years yeah in the, in the early years all that passing would have happened up before but near westinghouse pond because they, they were that big of a speed disadvantage that a fast buggy even if it got crushed up and over would catch up and pass way before the upper transition play so the, the, the place where all the action happens has migrated down towards the chute because that's where a two, that's the, dis, the difference between a fast and a slow buggy is only now in, not in tens of seconds in pre-roll, but in a handful of seconds. And that's the same amount of seconds there are between a good and a bad push team getting up and over. So right. it's, it's kind of the perfect storm for everybody meeting at the chute. Which certainly is fun for us, but uh, yeah. Uh, entertaining. Yeah, entertaining. definitely not. Not the safest. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, the rules are written so that if you're the buggy that's not in front, it's all on you to pass safely. Yet you're interpreted to allow re-rolls at the drop of a hat. Mm-hmm. 
unless you're PICA, in which case you should never get one. And that's uh, kind of weird, right? Somewhere between the rules and reality is where we are today. I get it that it's an event where you want everyone to have a shot, but is it a race or not? Right. So if you're going to get a, if you're going to have a re-roll, no matter what, why don't we just run them one at a time? It's not a speed test. I prefer a race. Yeah. But then the rules, the rules should be enforced. They were never enforced. There were people got re-rolls back in my day. They shouldn't have. But if you, if you read the, the history of buggy, there was plenty of times where people asked for re-rolls and didn't get them mm-hmm. from going up to about 2000. And after that, it seems like everybody gets one, no matter what. Although, yeah, notable few exceptions where it was clearly a mechanical failure, not a racing incident. Right. And people haven't gotten the rules. Hey, everybody. Hope you've been enjoying the episode so far. Quick editorial note. Uh, at this point in the recording, we actually had to take a break, uh, do some scheduling, and ended up recording the remainder of the episode a couple weeks later in a follow-up session. At that point, uh, we had received the unfortunate news about Carnival being canceled along with kind of all the other craziness in the world. Uh, So that does become referenced in the remaining portion of this podcast. But there are still a lot of things I wanted to hear about from Bordic and Estes. Uh, So here we go. Please enjoy part two of the Bordic Estes extravaganza. So welcome back, guys. Uh, First thing I like to get into here on this uh, second session is uh, right. You mentioned when you two came together on the broadcast, sounded like people were dubious or like, Oh, how are Estes and Bordic going to work together? So was there any background there or whether there was or not, what was it like kind of initially a Pike guy, a Sig new guy trying to sit down and work with one another on the, the broadcast? It was only awkward for a couple of minutes. I think. I only knew Andy through what had been a Pika buggy that turned into CMU buggy, just reading his post. And I don't think he knew me any other way either. But uh, we kind of just got down to business, and the business was trying to make a good broadcast. I think it was shocking when we didn't go after each other. (laughs) Right. But not to us. You know, it's funny because Wood, Tom Wood has, has kind of brokered a lot of relationships that were previously taboo. And, you know, at first, if I'm talking to a Sigma new guy, I don't, at first, I don't trust anybody in the whole world. When it comes to Buggy, I trust even fewer people and surely not a Sigma new guy from the 80s. So, you know, had to sort of break through that. But then, you know, there's, I think Mark and I have done more wink, wink, nod, nods for things that we know, which is sort of the, the like the, the 2% of the knowledge that you really need that's going to make you great stuff. Mm. And we sort of just, we look at each other and go, these guys are idiots. So we have conversations and we talk about stuff and we banter and we hold a little bit back because we both know that there's these little pieces that are there and we chat about it like offline with each other. So like we don't even give a hundred percent on the air because you know, why open the whole vault, you know? So it's the, the secrecy still pervades even your broadcasting and your conversation. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah, I think I think Andy's a little more circumspect than I am. Um, I've stopped caring so much about buggy secrets, but clearly there are things you can look right at him and go, "Oh, I see what's going on," that are not widely known. And you know, I think an example: I I posted some stuff on the Carnegie Mellon on, uh, as a comment on the history of buggy thread that is a great great write up. 
Um, if people are having buggy fever, just go read that, and it it, it makes it worse, but it also helps. Uh, and you know that stuff to me seemed like it was fairly not highly sensitive, but other people saw that as is you know lifting the kimono a little bit and, and talking about things that are normally not talked about. Hmm. I think it's it's a it's a matter of perspective. People know what they know, but they, they it's hard to realize what other people don't know. And I think that's where uh, the less you share, the better sometimes. So like you know for when. When I was doing buggy and the culture was so weird in Pika because we were super, super aggressive about it. And we had like sort of these enemies, right? So the enemies were Sigma Nu, it was Beta, and Fringe started to come up when I was doing and of course Spirit, right? So these are the ones that were like actual competitors. You know, some of these teams we would barely look at because they were doing so many things wrong, we didn't even care. But like you know, there was a hangover from what happened in the eighties where it was they were really, really making strides and these, I would call them fairly quantum leap changes, you know, wheel size, which everyone has the same wheels pretty much except for CIA. But like whenever I went to like those six inch size wheels or so, that was a huge deal. And it was a lot of secrecy there and a lot of, you know, I heard more stories about people stealing stuff, you know, breaking into stuff, like all kinds of, I mean, shoot, someone laid an oil slick on the course to like delay. I don't know if it was, I think it was a race day or maybe a, a free roll weekend. Like it was really diabolical. And that kind of went away. So it's fun for me and Mark to talk about it. But, you know, like I, I had Pika guys that were telling me, like, you don't ever talk to them because those guys are dirtbags. And I'm like, oh, whatever. So it was really much more divisive back then than it is now. I would say that in my undergrad years, the, the rivalry between Sigma Nu and Pika was in full flame. I mean, we, we had a rumble and it was ugly. Mm. And if we were gazorching, uh, they were our favorite target. Yeah, I'm sure. And we were theirs. And, you know, I think there was one race day where a, a cinder block got thrown through one of our big windows. And oh, yeah. we're pretty sure we saw the guy scamper back over to Pika. There was race days where we literally snuck out in the middle of the night and put super glue in the padlock that was locking their U-Haul shut. So they had a slightly bigger challenge to get into their own truck race day morning. <laughs> wow. Things like that. <laughs> yep. And I, you know, I think the the ultimate embodiment in in '82, um, you know, Sigma Nu had been trying and trying for years, and they finally broke through with a win. And it was the first time since '74, and that '74 win was sort of an early peak of their effort. And you know, there are other houses that have a much longer, richer history of sort of buggy fanaticism. But starting in the in the early '70s and running. Into the 2000s was sort of Sigma News heyday. When we won, it, we were not graceful winners with respect to Pika. We painted the word face on the hillside between our house and theirs. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was not pretty. Um, and awesome. yet, at the same time, I had lab partners that were Pika brothers. And we got along fine. So I think there was, there was I don't think there was any individual animosity. I think it was this greater two tribes. Mm kind of go into war and in a way that only very rarely escalated into, into real violence, but was definitely not friendly. And I would say back then, both organizations went to great lengths to keep eyes off of the buggies, both the exterior and the interior. You know, Pike has always been very secretive. And th you know, this was back in the day when not everyone was carrying around a, an amazing camera in the form of a cell phone in their pocket. You know, we back in our day, it was film, right? And you had something that you had to go develop or maybe yeah. a, a Polaroid, but that was kind of useless. And so there yeah. was, uh, you know, we we staged down in Baker Hall 
basically to be away from everybody. Mm. And we would just skip Hill 5s because that was, you know, we'd stop at the end of Hill 4 and take the buggies into Baker Hall. FICA was always kind of in their spot where they were. And uh, not everybody else pretty much just did their stuff out in the open. And it's coming on. Like, you know, more recently, Sigma Nu has just basically laid it all out there, left the buggy wide open sitting on the sidewalk. I think they've, they've forgotten that uh, some of the stuff in that buggy is still pretty good running gear. Yeah, so, no, I was actually really impressed when I saw inside, uh, what was it, was it a crate that I saw? Uh, I think so, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really nice inside. I was super impressed. Well, actually, so Andy, like, that's the fake buggy we leave out to, to entrap people like you. Oh, nice. <laughs> cool. Should have taken those wheels, man. But no, so the thing is, like, so that was a good point, though. We, because it was, it was harder to take pictures, like, Scott saw the wheel cover falling off the wheel, and he noticed something about it. And I'm not sure his memory would even remember what he saw correctly. And so it's like, I'm sure it just got the wheels in his head going. He's like, oh man, Pika does this thing with their wheels. That's crazy. And it's just that quick of a glimpse, right? It wasn't a particularly long look, even. But my guess is less than ten seconds. Wow. And it was like it was significant. Like he would, he would likely start really looking into why that was happening, what it was about. Mm-hmm. So it was cool. It was really cool. You kind of talk about recruiting a little bit. You know, it's funny because when I. So I pledged in the spring. So I'd been through the fall semester. I'm kind of looking at houses and I was looking at DU and, you know, not Sigma. I was looking at like Phi Cap, Data's Eye, whatever. And I just liked the guys better. Um, it wasn't really until you're sort of a pledge that you really get a sense of what the culture is. I know when I was recruiting people, we would recruit for all kinds of reasons. We surely would recruit, recruit athletes because they're just involved in other campus things. But like, like Pika actually has a target. They they want they target scholars, leaders, athletes, and gentlemen. So if you're any one of those things, we want you in the house. But when it came to buggy, we were definitely looking for a bunch of athletes, but also you, you need mechanics. You know, you need people who are really, you know, good with their hands. And uh, that's a little harder to recruit. But there were certain ways we would do it. And of course, going out of our way to find the smallest girls on campus. I mean, hands down. Like we, I would try to steal other drivers all the time. What would you do to try and steal them? I mean, the enticement is, like, they're already doing it, and I'd watch how, like, let's imagine it was a five-cap driver. And I'm like, come on, you know, you know five-cap's not going to win. It'll be the same amount of effort. You'll get free meals and the whole thing, and they'll drive for a group that has a chance of winning. Don't you want to really win? So I kind of, like, sway them that way. It was horrible. I think we didn't really recruit with quite as much criteria as Andy. I think we looked for people we could get along with, basically Mm. guys we liked hanging out with. You end up recruiting like people. Right. And so right. Sigma Nu had a weird sort of anomaly that happened my freshman year. They were a, a very small house and, and had been a small house for a, for a long time. And they had a lot of empty rooms. So they, they literally got something like 14 or 15 boarders. I think out of those, all but two converted to be pledges. And it was suddenly like they had that many ambassadors in the freshman class mm. inviting classmates and stuff over. So we had a pledge class that year in the fall that was, I can't remember if it was 19 or 20 something. Wow. And we had another huge pledge class in the spring. And suddenly the house that had been, you know, 19, 20 brothers was uh, three times that size because these were the, the people that ended up being dormers were usually the last ones admitted. And we were the ones that were on the wait list. Like for, for me, I was accepted into 
the College of Science, but not into the College of Engineering until much later. And so but by the time I, that invitation came, you know, there was no other student housing available. And ends up those kids are probably not the geekiest and the smartest. There's a good chance that they might be, um, you know, relative to Carnegie Mellon standards anyway, slightly more well-rounded. We ended up with a bunch of fairly athletic guys uh, who, just by the nature of you, end up recruiting people that are like you. That athleticism continued probably for the next decade or so. So you look at you look at sort of the the composition of the house back then. Who are some beefy, large lads? And you look now, and that clearly has bred out of the uh, of the specimen. And they're recruiting guys like themselves, and guys like themselves now are they're a lot smarter than we were, but they're not as athletic, at least in general. And and once again, the house has gone back to being tiny, so it's it's hard to make a, a broader assumption. But that sort of recruiting like people, I, I think, is why. We had the, the couple decade run of fairly decent buggy results that we had. And like to his point, you know, we I, we didn't go out and recruit pushers per se. You know, we we did a lot of intramural stuff too. So we you know we like the athletes and you know if we have sixty brothers in the house, buggy was just what we did. Like we just did it. You, you join the house like okay, we're doing hay bales. Hey, you're coming. You're a pledge. You're putting other hay bales. And then that rolled into hey, you know we're doing. We used to do like fitness classes in the house. Like at one time we were doing like jazzercise, we would do weightlifting classes, things like that. And so that's just what we did. So it wasn't even like right. a question. And so everybody was getting involved. And so you just roll some video and go, all right, you're doing this. But then later when we needed skills, like we would grab an industrial designer and like, dude, he's really good with his ID stuff. He's going to be, you know, our, our body and our paint guy. You know, there was some guy who would love to work on cars and actually knew how to hook up the compressor and the lacquer paint system that you would do to paint those things. And he would be, he's our painter, you know? And so right. we kind of took the talent that we had and put it where we needed it. And so it wasn't just recruitment. It was, this is our culture, what we do. You have a skill set, you're in. And I, I'd imagine it makes it easier then because there is that existing kind of brotherhood and mentality of doing something towards a larger goal to get people to hop on with buggy. Yeah, and it, yeah. it was funny because it started off a lot of unsavory things. Like, I don't know if Mark, knew it we would if we were like painting a buggy or had a buggy layup going out it would be right in the middle of our tap room which is the full basement of our house and it was just kind of out in the open and there were so many like attempts at theft that we couldn't ever leave a buggy in the chapter room like that not locked up in our buggy room so i slept many nights as a freshman just in the buggy room standing guard i just had you know you rolled out some chairs whatever and you slept down there on something you just made up because you had to guard buggies. We didn't quite have those extremes, but I will say that there was not a person that didn't have a job to do with respect to buggy, at least on race day, truck weekend, and generally uh, all season long. There was plenty of work to go around, and the better chairman we had did a really good job of, of delegating. I remember there was, literally there was like one guy left over in like my sophomore year. He hadn't yet done anything really, and he was just taking pictures, and we thought that's great. But then we needed something like at back at the house, just run back there and get it. And it was actually for him. It was the first time he had need, been needed for buggy. And he felt great. He's like, yes, right. <laughs> I'm doing something. There was also probably a reason why he hadn't been needed up to that point, but we won't go into it. <laughs> but, but it's funny, Will, because we had uh, Marco. There were so many people involved. If you needed something like that, there was nobody left to do it. Like I had nine timers, I think I mentioned. We had, you know, 20 pushers. 
you know, the carryout team, the flaggers, the whole thing. There's an army of people. I'm like, I need someone to run to the store and get this. And there's nobody left. Like we're asking brothers, girlfriends to go do stuff. I mean, that's what I, Hey, I need donuts. I haven't eaten in two days, you know? Right. There was nobody left to do some of the things that we hadn't planned. And I, I guess at that time, were Booth and Greek Sing not really relevant to the houses, or were the houses also involved in that? Uh, Greek Sing was pretty much all the rage still, although I think by that point, Sigma Nu had taken the approach that we didn't care anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think that was because they felt they had been robbed one year uh, of a worthy um, win or something. I, it was all before my time. But uh, they had really gotten to the point of not uh, putting on much of a Greek scene. But the rest of the Greeks were still very gung-ho. We had fun with it, but we were never serious. And then Booth was, was I think, all the rage. And some friends were more into Booth than Buggy. DTD was, did some amazing Booth stuff. We had the same Booth year after year. And it, it, it was usually a challenge to find it the next year. Because it was somewhere. Yeah. It was in pieces. But they, they changed the rules. Because back then, when I was chairman for Buggy, we couldn't win Buggy if we didn't do Greek Sing and Booth. Because you had to participate in all three or else you couldn't win any of them. For us to win, we had to, we had to make a Booth. And we didn't care at all about Booth and very little about Greek Sing because they're judges. Someone's opinion that determined the winner versus a clock. And so we were very focused on Buggy and we're like, okay, screw this. Now, I was an architecture major and we actually made a real Booth one year. And a few of us did it and then nobody stopped us and it was okay. Uh, we just want to do it for fun. And then later we started doing some acapella singing stuff because I wanted to get chicks. But um, we had to do it. Our booth was terrible. We did Batman for a booth every single year for like 15, 20 years. Every theme was Batman. Ours was draw, uh, bounce a ping pong ball into a fishbowl and win a goldfish, which usually turned ugly after people got drinking after carnival <laughs> because people Many. suddenly got an appetite for goldfish. Eat goldfish. And it was not good. But they, they changed that. Now you don't have to participate in Booth to win Buggy. So Pika doesn't even do Booth anymore. Kind of speaking then in the transition to now, well, we covered this a little bit earlier, but the teams have changed drastically. Uh, things do favor independence in a large number of ways. Right proportionally, I think the Greek population is smaller. And I know kind of Greek success is something that is meaningful to the both of you. Do you have thoughts on how the sport will evolve or what might need to change for Greeks to be really more strongly in the conversation? I think before we go to what's going to happen in the future, giving a a little bit of a then versus now perspective, I think the thing that kept the Greeks ahead of the game in our era was that we we did have pretty good sized organizations and having an organization like a a fraternity was certainly advantage with logistically. But one of the bigger differences, and we talked about, you know, what really makes a buggy, it's pushers and wheels followed by a driver followed very distantly by an actual buggy. And we kind of had the corner on the market for wheels in terms of, if you looked at the the wheels that, that, uh, SDC or any other independent was rolling on back in, in, in the 80s. The only exception was CIA, and they managed to win. But generally speaking, the SDC could have thrown the same pushers and horsepower they have today at the buggy they had back then, and without any wheels, it wasn't going to go anywhere. And the, the bigger change that happened, uh, I guess, around the time when pneumatics got to be big, but continued through... Uh, the Zooter revolution into today with basically custom Zooters 
is that there's never been an easier time to get fast wheels. You know, it, it, the last time there was a great equalizer was back when everybody was rolling on basically stock soapbox derby wheels. And that was like the 60s and the early 70s. The thing that changed stuff, I think, is the availability of wheels. And finally, the, the you know the, the sort of legacy knowledge that fraternities used to have that helped them. Well, the independent orgs have had plenty of time to pick that up as well. Right. So there, there's there's that, that sort of critical volume of buggy knowledge now resides in Fringe and SDC and CIA and is, is probably growing at places like Apex. And clearly Spirit has had it because they've had 40 years now to, to, to get their uh, sort of their buggy mojo pulled together. And so, you know, if you look at it from that perspective, it, it's not surprising that independents have, have risen up. And as fraternities have, have become fewer and shrunk, it was really only the big ones that are really able to compete. And if you look at who's gone fast, it's Pika, who has, in the years that they've gone quickly, they've had a reasonably large house, and Siga, who has usually over 100 brothers to pull from. And they end up with a, a uh, in some years, they've had remarkable push teams. I think it was back in like 2007, they were a push team in search of a buggy because it was before Barracuda, and they still managed like a 214 on something that shouldn't have even been on the course. Andy, you got any, any thoughts there? The only thing I would say is different is, is with the availability of those wheels, it's, it's elevated other programs up, but it's not moving. Buggy speeds aren't getting much faster. It's not like we're five miles an hour faster. We're not hitting times that are much faster. It just makes more people in that same, it's crowding the top more. And so the thing that sets mm-hmm. you apart now is your push team. And so mm. what happens is, you know, I think some of the, the stuff that Brian's been putting out lately is really good because there's that one year where Trent Sisson runs an amazing Hill 1. He gives a huge shove to Hill 2, and the Hill 2 guy is so amped up that he bumps it and never touches it. So they blow the shove, then the wheel cover falls off in the shoot turn, and then um, the Hill 5 guy misses the push bar. I mean, they DQ'd themselves, they DQ'd themselves twice and made a major error once. That's the difference. Your push team has to be there. And you have to have the details and you have to focus. So I think what, what it comes down to now is whoever is the most focused on the details and can get the push team is going to win because the buggies are really – those CIA buggies aren't pretty, but they roll fast enough. Like Mark yeah, said. There's a, there used to be the haves and the have-nots, and now it's, there's a bunch of haves. Yeah. You are correct. So and, the hard part really is keeping the motivation up hmm. in a group. Like, you know, Pika comes up and down these years now because – the chairman has to be a really dynamic motivator to get the 20 or 25 brothers that are actually doing it these days. It's not a full house effort like it used to be. And so whoever is running SDC that can bring all those people together and keep them with some kind of dedicated culture is the reason they went. It's not because of their buggies and their wheels. It's because that person is giving them the details that they need. They know how to follow the rules and they got the pushers to move the buggy. And that's why they win. So what I what I see happening in the future, because I agree with Andy there, is that you're going to see somebody, another independent, rise up who's got more focus than SDC. It might not be this year or next, certainly not this year. But you know, Fringe did it once, not that long ago. CIA could do it. It could be. It could be in five years. We could be talking about Apex. Certainly, SDC has had a very impressive run. You know, Fringe has been up and down, and CIA seems to be back from the dead which you know, they had pretty much vanished at one point. Yeah. And so anybody in that group could, has a shot. Now, Apex has had, right. you know, buggies in the finals now the last two years. So it, it's getting 
hard, and it's who gets those fast five guys and can deliver can deliver a buggy. And then at the very sharp end of the of the field, yeah, it's still Matt. You have to have flawless execution on that A team. Every pusher, the driver, and the prep on the buggy. And look at last year. But it, it, the difference between SCC and Pica was what? 0.19 seconds? And yeah, nothing. I think it was the Hill 4. It wasn't, wasn't a great 3-4 exchange, and the Hill 4 did, wasn't great, and wasn't a great 4-5 exchange. And that's it. That's the difference between winning and losing. Like, one little segment. Like Mark said, that, that, that girl's turn was amazing. But then it's little things like that. So which team can do that? Any one of these guys can do it. What, what I hope for is like a DG can step up and focus that way and be competitive in a quick turnaround like Spirit did when they first emerged. And I think a team could do that more easily now. The way Spirit did it was a really, really hard way. And you could do it now pretty easy. And it'll be interesting to see. I, I was mentioning earlier, right, the Buggy Alumni Association are trying to put together efforts to grow the field back out and provide mentorship to teams. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, with even more focus putting on kind of incubation and getting teams to get up to speed quicker, uh, what those ramifications might be for, for the field going forward. I hope it works. It's, I mean, buggy is hard and it's hard to run an organization and it's hard to be a student and run an organization. I think I proved that um, definitively. And I'm not sure if Andy's grades ever suffered, but certainly mine did. And yes, oh, yeah. I managed to get a job because of buggy, so maybe it all worked out. It's it's hard to be a, a it's hard to be a small organization uh, unless you have some real sort of momentum behind you, like you come in gangbusters. Apex has done pretty well, but I mean you can count the number of teams that have come and gone uh, in my lifetime, and it's fairly significant. So it's it's clearly hard. Like Mark said, the hardest part to me is all the specifics. Like as a you're going to have someone that's going to make the buggy and like manage that. And that's a huge job. But then if you miss a meeting, they find you. If you miss two, you could be disqualified. If your drivers don't go to meetings, I mean, you got to be so organized. So like somebody else is rent, you know, managing all the admin part. And then somebody else then is also like your push team lead. It, you know, can't possibly be the same person. There's too much work to do. So if you're, if you're DG, you need like a push team captain that's a good leader. You need like a, a mechanic that's a good leader. You need someone that can do all the admin stuff as a good leader. And it's hard for A to have one of those people, let alone three. And it's really hard for all three of those people to get along. Right. I was blessed with amazingly good servant leaders in all those facets. And we all just trust each other and do a lot of work. And I, you know, I think that's, that might be the reason that, that fraternities could have more longevity because there's more inherent trust. You know, he's someone who rolls up to, you know, Apex and he's just some kid from, you know, Hammerschlag. He's like, oh, I want to do this. You, you don't fully trust him. But, you know, when it's your fraternity brother you've been with for two years, you're like, okay, you do this. And you, you kind of trust it's going to happen. You know, I think DG's got a big, and Kappa, they're doing it too, a big challenge. You know, when Kappa tried it last time, they built one of the ugliest buggies I've ever seen in my entire life. It looked like tapioca pudding was, like, shaped into a turd. It was horrible. And yeah, it, it even made Mad Dog look good. Yeah, I know, right? Mad Dog was like uh, Picasso. You know, it's kind of misshapen yeah. and asymmetric. It's just, it was hard because they were clearly focused on building, which is a great way to rally people around things. But that's not always the main thing you have to do the first year or two. And even then, you kind of need to be able to almost build across a couple generations of classes uh, to figure out what you're doing unless you're, you know, getting some really good coaching, I would imagine. Yeah, that's the funny part that I think people 
thought differently about, you know, like a buggy. I had no how-to manual to build a buggy. I basically had on-the-job training, and I worked with somebody who had built two or three uh, already, and then, you know, I had some really hardly written notes. There were some lessons learned in there, but it wasn't like step one, sign this, step two, do this. It was none of that. So basically, every year, the chairman was trying to figure out what the heck to do and how to make a buggy, and it definitely was not like standard work or a nice recipe. So that's yeah. why Pucky Buggies look so different year after year because there's no standard. Yeah, there's not nearly as much continuity as you might imagine, Well, between hmm. between buggies, even a few years apart. I, mean, I, I just kind of looked at, we had buggies in the garage that we looked at, and we were like, we don't even know how they made that. <laughs> what, we, we had no idea what the materials were, and, and we were, you know, pretty savvy guys. We we're like, what is this? <laughs> and, and we were baffled. And then you look at, like, Lemur, which was a fairly revolutionary buggy. It had almost nothing in common with like the six Sigma new buggies that came before that, which were all sort of evolutions on the theme of what ended up being the last one was ESP, which was a tube-shaped four-wheeler that was highly regarded and yet had zero in common with the next one. And then by the time uh, they built, say, the King of Spades, we had moved into the composite realm 100% and had left all the technology of ESP and Lemur behind. There is no sort of, hey, that worked and this might work. Some of the fundamental principles that might go into your design are definitely common. Mm. You know, what does my wheelbase look like? How am I going to, you know, if I'm building a trike, what does that look like? What's the ideal? What what should I avoid doing? Which I can give you plenty of examples that I did that were bad ideas. Um, but uh, the individual, you know, the use of materials and how to, how to build the thing and how to make sure all the important bits stay attached and pointed in the right direction. I think you're always trying to build something lighter, which makes the, which invites you to experiment in those areas, and not all those experiments go well. <laughs> That's true. I've got some of those yeah. in my basement right now. And I think Pike had got to the point where they had a couple buggies that were so optimized that they weren't going to last more than a season or two. Well, and, and Pike alone didn't didn't last through race day. Ken Brickner would shove it on hill two, and it would flex so badly that the belly would scrape the pavement. Wow. So he'd shove to hill two and go, because the whole buggy, buggy would bend like a banana. Because it was just made of such thin material? or It was it was 17 pounds with wheels and everything. Wow. And I think the, the first incarnation of Jerboa was not far behind that in terms of being light and being a, a giant slinky. You, you realize where the limit is. Like, that's too light. Yeah. Not too light. It's Please. too weak. Too- yeah, so yeah, we added a pound or so, and suddenly it was it was a reliable buggy. But I I figured out where the line was on that one, and then yeah. I, I built two very similar buggies in Yamabachi and the Pope, and they were sort of the first composite hybrid stuff. And shell wise and shape wise, all this great stuff, slinkies, and they they were not they never went down the hill fast. So you know we had these sort of boxy, very crude but stiff buggies that rolled like crazy. Mm. And the pretty well-designed ones kind of sucked ass. And <laughs> it wasn't really until, I think, you know, the second coming of JAMA or the King of Spades where they finally got all the composite stuff and all the hardware stuff to get along. And then they it's immediately like, set to trying to break that by making them lighter and lighter, which was all the, all the clones of the King of Spades, like Okapi and Jubatis and Tenth Commandment. None of them had the longevity because they were they were optimized to try to make you know try to get back to that super light and that's uh, it's not the same mm-hmm. recipe as durability and sometimes not the same recipe as fast. And it's funny 
will, because we like you talk about culture. Our culture was to look to race day and that's it. We had zero, zero investment into longevity of any one buggy year after year. You know, I was building my buggy to win in 1994 and that's all I cared about. If mm-hmm. it worked out longer than that, that's great. But my plan was that year, that was all I cared about. So there's good about that and there's bad about that. The good part is you're really focused on optimizing what you're doing, trying to get that win. And it gives you a real strong motivation to do new things. Like I did some stuff with my steering that, that we had never tried before. And, you know, I, I had like an integrated, it's part aluminum and part composite, different elements of the buggy have different, different structure to it. And other folks hadn't really done that recently. So it was good. But what happened was we had a lot of disposable buggies. It meant we built all the time, which kept the training program going. It kept more people involved, mm-hmm. but it means you had very little consistency. Look at like SDC now. I mean, like Mark said, I think they repaint those buggies different colors and just take a black one as their A buggy and call it Malice. Who knows? But they're using the same mold, the same method. It's, it's fairly obvious. Right. Um, and so. Well, I think but, the last two came out of a new mold, but very similar. I mean, they, and, and I think Fringe and SDC have been experimenting on that same theme now for, got, what, a decade or more? Yeah, and they're tweaking a little bit of wheelbase and a little bit of size and angles. They're very slow evolutions. Yeah, I mean, it was big news when Pica went back to a trike, right? We went, yeah. wow, okay, cool. And now you've built, what, four or five of them, maybe six? No. Well, they got three, but I'm not in love with that. And it was it was a big deal when, when you guys brought up Chimera, which was a, an interesting buggy and kind of a, an homage to Fringe, right? You saw what was working for them and went, hey, why not? Yeah, the rumor I heard about that was that, you know, SolidWorks was pushing you to that design. And that's why they both had it. So it's <laughs> funny. I wonder how the tools can do it because you can now have basically cheap aerodynamics. We didn't, I never had a, you know, any kind of modeling that would give me aerodynamics. I just had to read and surmise aerodynamics from the theoretical, not from the practical. I didn't have a wind tunnel. I don't have, you know, have some software that can do it. And, you know, those, those weird wheel fairings on Chimera and all these fringe buggies come out of SolidWorks. Yeah, the tools available to make buggies these days are pretty remarkable. And, you know, we basically built almost everything with a hacksaw and a belt sander. Right. That's, that was my two major tools for most of the buggy work. So, Mark, all those tools and hacking, like, what's, what's the fastest buggy roll that ever happened? And what's the fastest buggy that ever hit the course? Mm-hmm. I don't think it's recent. The times are better, but it's not the free roll that's doing it. No, they're certainly more pushable with the lighter wheels, right? It basically, the... Uh, if you take and look, if we use kind of first order approximation, and this is a buggy secret, just double the weight of your wheels, and that's the impact they have on your push. Right? It's as if they weigh twice as much as they weigh when they have, you have them in your hand mm-hmm. when you factor in inertia. And so when we went from three six-pound wheels to three wheels that weigh less than a pound, that was like taking 40 pounds out of the buggy almost. Yep. And uh, 35-ish anyway. So you can see why the push times have gotten better, or at least more consistent, because there have been some amazing pushers, right? To get a 210, whatever it was, 210.5 that uh, CIA got back in 81 with Black Magic, which I think weighed about a billion pounds, was a, that push team, you put them on a modern buggy, and they are they're knocking on the record easily because yeah. those kids could scamper. They were fast. There's been a, a few here and there. I mean, the, the, I think the, the best hill one ever was probably our guy on at, from in the early 80s, Doc Bechtel, who I think CMU radio had him at, four, at a sub-15, like 14.2 or 
fourteen four for Hill One, which is well, that literally I still have the audio tape where they where they yelled it out. He was quick, and he kind of looked like um, the missing link. Something when he pushed, he got very red, and he was a big man, and he could just motor. And it was like watching. There was a year, I guess, when Sig F had some just giant pushers, and they just looked like giants amongst men. He was like that. He was just a huge, fast individual, and they don't make that many of him. So what do I see happening? I I see the race tightening at the front because you'll have the rolling tech is all there. It's a matter of which team can put together the focus and the push team for that year. SDC doesn't have a monopoly on quick pushers. No, and and I think we we've seen some evidence of that. Although they certainly kudos to them for having an amazing run of consistently great results. Right, they are they are the uh, the target that everyone's shooting for. Yep, and they stayed out front. But man, it was close last year, wasn't it, Andy? Yeah, that stunk. It would have been nice to break it up. I will tell you that um, you know I really was hoping that Pike would win that, and losing by that close, I think probably made it worse. It's like SDC opened the door by giving you know a two oh six time. Um, I would be, you know, probably 90% as happy as a Pika win if, like, a Sigma Nu won. If another Greek organization won, I'd be super happy because I think it'd be a huge motivator to get those teams back into it. You know, I don't know if Pika brings along SIGEP because they can they can prove that you know, a couple of guys with a good tradition and good focus can beat SDC. I know for sure if SIGEP won or Sigma Nu won that me and a bunch of other pikes would be very excited for them because we do want to see the Greeks win. And it's been quite some time. But I'm just looking back through 2008 Pika on the men's, 2006 Pika on the women's side, and then since then it's been all independence. And that, that 2008 race is probably my favorite race ever because of the, the way they duped it out with SDC, just throwing down amazing time after amazing time. Oh, that day was amazing. That day was unbelievable. I mean, that, that's the revolution that I would hope to see more often that we don't. You know, you see four times that break the record in two days. It's just crazy. And all of a sudden, it shaves stuff off. And, I mean, the 202 that SEC rolled is unbelievable. And even they haven't been able to match that. So I don't know what happened that year. You know, my data says that it was a push team um, and a good roll. Good course conditions that year, if I recall correctly. Yeah, that Mark sort of mentioned with the wheels is like, you can have these smaller wheels, but then they'll be more impacted by bumps in the road, literally. And then, you know, a lot of times CIA used to have great roll-ups because they had these giant wheels that would carry them up to way up in Hill 3, which sets you up pretty good for the back hills, but it just took too long to get them up to speed. You know, Pike has got these tiny little, like, four-inch size wheels that I'm sure accelerate really fast, but you hit a little bump and it just bleeds all your speed. And so I think being able to go back and forth is going to keep you competitive. I just, I don't know where it's going to end up. I think we're just too slow. I think the buggy's going to get faster. Mm. I'm not quite sure how. I have ideas. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm, I'm also bummed that we don't have a, uh, a race day this year because I was really hoping because Andy was going to do it. He was going to pull Mad Dog out. We were going to have Mad Dog 2020. It was going to be awesome. Now, we're, now we might have Mad Dog 2021. It's not really the same. No, it was good. Definitely that was good. Yeah, it is. Really disappointed. I was looking forward to, to calling it with y'all. And a lot of people have been doing a lot of work to uh, put something special together for the 100th. And I do also wonder how that might affect some of these things where there is no race day. You'd think, right, SDC still the prohibitive favorite, but you have two years in between races. Does that give other people a chance to 
catch up, some other surprises? Does it make them fall back? I think there could be, you know, things get a little more wide open with the fact that there's that kind of gap in history. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but it probably does change. Anyway, certainly I feel bad for the seniors. Because at this point, you, if you're like the buggy chairman for, for, for PICA or SDC or Fringe and, and, and you're a senior, you have already invested a shit ton of time and effort. And it's all for naught. And you're like, oh, now what? Shit. School? I have to study? Dang. Right. I feel bad for them. I mean, that's, that's really, I might think about, it would have been a gut punch to, to have lived through this, at least in my day. I would have lost my yeah. mind. Yeah, within that, it's different than if you're senior on the basketball team or whatever. Okay, you, you don't get to go to your tournament. That sucks. But you at least got to play some games. You got some stats, right? Buggy is so unique in that you've been practicing and there's nothing to show for it this year for those seniors. I, I think I personally shelled out about $4,000 my, my last year when I was chairman into the Buggy program. And so shell out you know, all that time, effort, and money, and it's just, you don't even get to see it race. Oh, my gosh. Kind of with that, though, right? We don't get a race day, but I think the last thing I really wanted to go through with y'all, and you've gone over some of them, right? 2008, for instance, but what are some of your favorite race day memories, either as broadcasters or students or just observers, and things that kind of stick out to you over these hundred years that were were really great, whether they be races or goofy things that happen outside. Well, I I think Andy, how many times did did Pika win when you were uh, on board? Since I was an architect, I had five years. I won my freshman year and my fifth year. That was it. We had two wins in in my my span, so those were probably the highlights, and for obvious reasons. You know, I think about memories, and it's usually some weird, crazy roles. When Pika switched their A team out and rolled against Beta. And they came together in the shoot. I had, I actually was, was, you know, we were done. We rolled for the day. I got out of the truck and I, I kind of boogied up to the top of the hill to see the, to see the roll. And it was almost like I had a zoom lens. It was, and, and like the sky darkened and there was just a spotlight on those two buggies because they were never more than a couple buggy lengths apart. And maybe I was just so focused that it was like, it was like a weird cinematic effect, that roll. And as they ground together and ground to a stop, it was it was kind of like one of those crazy miracle moments because I wasn't even sure if, did that mean we just won? <laughs> I had no idea, but it was one of those memories that that sticks with me, and I'm sure it's distorted in my head. Clearly, there wasn't a spotlight on the buggy, and I couldn't see them in that detail. And yet, in my mind's eye, that's exactly what happened. And I, I think the same way about that role where uh, Spirit, who was running with their rear wheels inside fairings was up against uh, Sigma Nu back when the uh, the King of Spades was young and light. And in the final, Sigma Nu went up and over with them and actually was about a couple feet ahead when they went off hill too. And those buggies hooked together, yet in a manner where they weren't rubbing wheels. Because if you rub a wheel, it stops pretty quick. But if all your wheels on both buggies are enclosed, it's just a really crazy bumper car. And they literally ground together all the way around the course at about five miles an hour. Wow. Hilarious. And it, and it was, it was crazy. And I think I was in either the lead car filming or I might've gotten a, a seat in the follow car for no apparent reason, but that was a remarkable role. Those are the things that, that stick with me. Uh, the horrible year with the fire sticks with me as a memory. That was uh, 86. Yep. And that's when we almost lost buggy. So 87 was a challenge because not only was I trying to build a buggy, but I was trying to build a buggy while the rules changed, which was, which was tough. 
and trying to keep buggies we had from getting eliminated because the new rule changes, a bike helmet didn't fit in any of our buggies. And I don't think they fit in, in very many buggies on campus unless you had built something pretty big, in which case you probably weren't Sigma Nu, Pica, or Beta because we were building pretty tiny little things back then. Mm. So those are uh, good and bad memories. Seeing the bikes roll was cool. I love that. Mm. Uh, sad that they went away, but I get it. Andy, what about you? So, you know, it was crazy. My freshman year, we won, and it was, you know, it's fun. But I'm a freshman. I don't know anything. Heck, I'm a public pledge. And then we lost three years in a row to Spirit. You know, my fifth year when I was chairman, I was super stressed out about this. And so we're going into, into race day, and uh, day one, we were in the lead. And we go to day two, and things are happening in a very odd way. A couple of good groups kind of fell out. And so it ends up that we're rolling last heat of the day and spirit had rolled and Cap actually was ahead of them. So the time to beat was like a two fourteen, and we're in, I'm in the follow truck and that the wind is picking up and the clouds got dark and we're going up hill one. I think right over hill two, big fat raindrops started falling down and I'm like freaking out because hey, I'm worried if you're going to make it through the turn that the course is going to be wet and I'm yelling at the safety chair. I'm like, this is garbage. I'm protesting this. This is, this is unfair. The whole time I'm yelling, yelling, yelling. I'm in the ear. We're like in the middle of Hill 4 because the file truck was so far behind. Uh, and I think we actually were rolling against Sigma Nu, who had a decent roll, um, but still we're a couple seconds behind us. The, the safety chair turns to me and says, do you still want to protest? I said, why? He said, do you just roll the 209? And I like fell out of the truck and was sprinting uphill five because it was just, I was so excited. <laughs> and then Pika had, had this tradition, and this was part of the pressure for the, you know, having these three years that Spirit won. Pika had a, had a win every four years since 1952. So every graduating class, if you pledge Pika in as a freshman, you saw a win in your time. And that streak hadn't been broken in like 40 years. And it was up to me to, to make it happen. So we would drink out of the 1952 cup and we put champagne in it and you had a choice. You either chug the champagne at the champagne ceremony or you had to dump it over your head. And, you know, depending who it was, we'd give smaller amounts of champagne or larger amounts. Everybody who was involved did it. Mm-hmm. And they dumped a whole bottle of champagne in that cup and I drank it. <laughs> so 20 minutes later, we go to awards. Spirit did their thing and I'm getting ready to go up and they wouldn't let me on the stage. This is when it was, in, it was on the cut. It was right in the middle of campus. And they're like, you can't go on stage, sir. You're too drunk. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm fine. Some gracious people like dragged me back to the house. On the way, my parents were there. And my mom is yelling at me because I'm obviously falling over drunk. Mm-hmm. Apparently she's yelling at me, yelling at me, yelling at me. And finally I look at her and I said, who are you? And they carried me back to my bed. <laughs> that took me several decades to have my mom recover from that one. Yeah. But, uh, totally worth it it's weird because when we won i looked right at your mom and said who are you no no yeah, right <laughs> <laughs> better you than me pal no no i i in the two years we won i never made it to awards yeah it's uh, tough no it's I, big deal. well alcohol and like missing three days of sleep is not a good combo so yep. yeah i was out long before then my my, my other memory and i remember i don't know how it happened but a pledge came back going, hey, I went into our garage and we have all these buggies up there I'd never seen before. 
and we went, which garage did you go into thinking it was ours? And he described it, and we went, oh, perhaps we should go back with you. <laughs> cool. And, and then it became, it became like Mission Impossible. How do you get the other organization's buggy back to your house without being seen stealing it? So right. step one is you, you take it into your garage, and then you cover it with blankets, and then you carry it back openly like it's your buggy. And then we put it in, at the time, the chairman's bed. He was not impressed. But then he roused the troops to hang it off of Hammerschlag, which was a beautiful thing. There are still photos somewhere of, I've seen that. I think it was a, a Pylam buggy hanging off of Hammerschlag. Yeah, that was back when, when espionage was, was still happening. Wow. So we had, a, we had a master key that fit just about every lock on Fernie Road. And we only got it by mistake. Mm. I think we were trying to, to copy our own house master key and filed it just slightly too wrong, and it started opening everything. And we shouldn't have had that key. Hey, Mark. Yes? We had that key, too. I know. So, yeah, we had that key. So we, we were very hesitant to leave anything out in the garage because that was, like, open season. Right. Right. Yeah, the garages were crazy. There was, like, a garage break-in, like, every other week. Wow. Yeah, so as, as soon as you had parts that were put together well enough to – be considered a buggy you usually carried them back to the house overnight but we had we had fragments of older buggies out in the garage for years like hornet that you can see if you that old video of hornet smashing into the the bales in a tree against beta it still looks exactly like it did after it hit that tree oh i'm sure all chipped up and bonded we never fixed it do you did you ever hear tales of the of the uh forbes avenue free rolls which one so they they the Forbes Avenue free rolls, they closed the bridge, the one between campus and the Phi. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was closed for almost a year. So traffic, there was no traffic on Forbes from Moorwood all the way down to the bottom. And it was sometime after Buggy, but before graduation, we started realizing that we could free roll from Moorwood all the way down to the bridge at night anytime we wanted. Everybody, like... Beta was playing, DTD was playing, I think FICAP played, there was a Theta Xi buggy or two involved, and we rolled Wizard for that. And so we literally had downhill races, and the only way to stop at the bottom, if you had brakes, you could use them, or you could turn left into the Bureau of Mines driveway. Right. Which had a, had a pretty good lip. Yeah. So most buggies didn't make it more than two or three rolls before they literally were in pieces. But this went on for like, I'd say two or three weeks. <laughs> of nocturnal buggy races. It was right. kind of crazy. And that was after Carnival. Yeah, and uh, no sobriety involved at all. <laughs> well, I, I really appreciate y'all uh, yeah, joining in and coming back on. I, definitely a bummer not to be able to call it uh, with you all this year, but um, 2021, uh, assuming the planet's still functioning or whatever. Yeah, we'll be back. I can't wait. Yeah, it'll be fun. Take care, guys. Cool. Yeah, guys. appreciate y'all. So there we are. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, would love to receive any feedback on this. You can shoot me an email or we now have a Discord channel, uh, hashtag podcast in the Buggy Alumni Association Discord, uh, where you can share all your thoughts, feelings, uh, refute some of Bordic and SD's hot takes, anything you like. Uh, additionally, if you have an idea for an upcoming episode or would like to be featured on one, uh, we'd love to hear that too. Um, I think we have about uh, five or six sitting in the queue. We're going to try and release them every Sunday coming up. 
few people I need to thank. First off, the entire Buggy Alumni Association uh, for their help in getting this off of the ground and really running, specifically Rachel Schmidt, who has done a ton of behind-the-scenes work in producing this, getting a lot of the characters together uh, who we are interviewing and managing those schedules. Additionally, the intro music is by Scott Holmes, uh, the song Hot Shot from the Free Music Archive. Uh, and yeah, we are now up on pretty much every major podcasting platform. So make sure to subscribe, tell your friends, and I hope you tune in next time when we come back and shoot the shit.